0: Good evening and welcome to the Doctor Zeus film podcast. So yesterday we had a very serious death in our country, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG. And tonight I promise you, we're going to talk about the documentary that you can watch. There's many things that you can watch on the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But let's start with the documentary was directed by Betsy West and Julie Cohen. Why are we talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast? Because I believe in documentaries. I believe in feature films. This documentary is essential, especially right now. I don't care what political affiliation you belong to. I don't think that this administration should pick the next Supreme Court justice. It should be the next administration, okay? And so we're going to talk about the Notorious RBG, this amazing documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She, her name needs to be said. She needs a Funko Pop, okay? I have so much love and admiration for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, okay? So stay tuned, Dr. Zeus Podcast. Welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. So, tonight we're going to talk about the film, The Notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It is an amazing documentary. It came out in 2018 that coincided with the feature film called The Basis of Sex. Um, because, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg started out as an attorney. And fought many um, sex discrimination cases, both involving men and women. And in 2018, this amazing documentary came out. And I do mean amazing. So, the American documentary directed and produced by Betsy West and Julie Cohen. It focused on the life and career of second female Supreme Court justice after Sandra Day O'Connor. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. When I watched this film, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware of the legal prof- profession. I worked in a law library slash undergraduate library, so I knew a lot of lawyers. I knew a lot of law students. And I knew about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was nominated by Bill Clinton in 1993. She was on the Supreme Court for 27 years her own husband um was the one who uh basically rallied for her it was an amazing amazing 56 year marriage she continued to serve as supreme court justice even after his death from cancer in 2010 and That's, that's got to be pretty tough This documentary talks about this You know, she talks about how her husband was the only man ever who cared that she had a brain She saw herself as a kindergarten teacher back in those early days Because it was like she was having to teach people about, you know, discrimination against women Because they thought they knew Oh, you know, because women were considered second-class citizens And then comes the notorious RBG, Okay? Ruth Bader Ginsburg This documentary We're going to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg And go in depth A little further than some of you want to But we need to She was born Joan Ruth Bader March 5th, 1933 And in 1950 Okay Let's let's dive into this Ginsburg was born and grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Her older sister died when she was a baby, and her mother died shortly before Ginsburg graduated from high school. She then earned her bachelor's degree at Cornell University and became a wife to Martin D. Ginsburg and a mother before starting law school at Harvard, where she was one of the few women in her class. Ginsburg transferred to the Columbia Law School, where she graduated tied for first in her class. Following law school, Ginsburg entered academia. She was a professor at Rutgers Law School and Columbia Law School, teaching civil procedure as one of the few women in her field. Ginsburg spent a considerable part of her legal career as an advocate for gender equality and women's rights, winning multiple arguments before the Supreme Court. She advocated as a volunteer attorney for an American Civil Liberties Union and was a member of its board of directors and one of its general counsels in the 1970s. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit where she served until her appointment to the Supreme Court. Ginsburg received attention in American popular culture for her fiery liberal dissents and refusal to step down. She was playfully dubbed the Notorious RBG, a reference to Brooklyn-born rapper The Notorious Big. So we've dived into that. Now, the documentary itself, the documentary came out in 2018. It chronicles, you know, how she became this icon, her famous descents, these memes that were created, you know, without truth, you you can't have truth without Ruth, you know. Um, It really dived into it. It was an amazing, amazing documentary. Despite being in her 80s and having survived colon and pancreatic cancer, Ginsburg's works Relentlessly uh, late nights And often gets only a few hours of sleep She also was shown exercising At a gym with a personal trainer When asked how long she plans to remain On the Supreme Court Ginsburg responds that she will stay Only as long as she is able to address The cases placed before her With the full ability And integrity of her lifetime Of experience in practicing law So what did this documentary Mean to me? I grew up with a feminist mother feminist grandmother. Many women in my family are feminists. I loved this documentary. And I was a little sad that it didn't win the Oscar, but you know, it doesn't always have to mean a win awards to be meaningful. And so when Justice Ginsburg died yesterday, I immediately thought of that documentary. I want to show my mother that documentary. It's an amazing documentary because you get to see The beginning, you know, we wouldn't have all of these amazing descents if it weren't for the beginning. Her roots, you know, how she became this iconic Supreme Court justice. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, she was a liberal. And that's the problem here is just because she was a woman, just because she was the liberal justice. But at the same time, she had friendships with Justice O'Connor, who was a bit conservative, and Justice Scalia. It was very conservative so with justice ginsburg you know i have nothing but love and admiration for her and so i don't i not only encourage you to watch this documentary the notorious rbg i demand that you watch it you can find it streaming i don't know about physical because i looked on amazon the physical copies are sold out okay So get a hold of the Notorious RBG. It is very important. It is essential. Whether you have girls in your family or not. I know a lot of my listeners have daughters. This is important. Because then they're going to look back and think, Ah, the Notorious RBG. Okay? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We need to say that name more often. You know, with this documentary, I learned a lot about her. I learned a lot of what she went through. You know, her her husband was the, the breadwinner in the family. And then he said after years of helping her, it was her turn. It was her turn to shine in the light. And that's an amazing thing, to have an amazing partner such as she did with Martin Ginsburg. And this documentary shows that. It talks to her children. It talks to her grandchildren. You know, I'm sorry if I sound impassioned, but... I can't stress enough the importance of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died yesterday at the age of 87. I don't want to get choked up over it, you know, because we have work to do. And if anything, this documentary is going to help you. It's going to help you understand, okay? A lot of you who think, oh, you know, I can't make a difference. Yes, you can, okay? Without truth, you don't have truth without Ruth. Just remember that. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wherever you are, here at the Doctor Zeus Film Podcast, this documentary is essential. You know, we all watch our documentaries. We watch Bowling for Columbine, Give Me Shelter, Grey Gardens. We need to put the Notorious R.B.G. up there. You know, I can't. I can't stress enough how amazing this documentary was. And um, you know, Justice Ginsburg. Yeah. Let's just read a little bit here. Ruth Bader Ginsburg successfully argued five of the six cases regarding, regarding gender discrimination before the U.S. Supreme Court. She advocated for both men and women facing gender-based bias. Among the plaintiffs she represented were, was Sharon Frontenero, a woman facing housing discrimination in the U.S. Air Force, and a male single parent denied Social Security benefits normally paid only to the single mothers. Ginsburg argued these cases in the 1970s when gender discrimination was rampant in the U.S. society and an all-male Supreme Court was generally skeptical of claims of bias against women. So Justice Ginsburg, you know, she was talking about uh, Ginsburg's granddaughter who appears in the film as a graduate of Harvard Law School. She notes her graduating class was 50... 50% percent male, 50% female. When Ruth attended the Harvard Law School, she was one of only nine female students in a class of approximately 560 total. The film contrasts Martin Ginsburg's gregarious personality with Ruth's more stoic nature. Ruth's children note that although their mother is a brilliant lawyer, she is an awful cook. Martin says that he refrained from offering his opinions on legal matters to his wife. And she refrained from cooking after their children complained about her lack of culinary skills. So, you know, we have lighthearted moments like that in the Notorious RBG. So this is the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. I want you to go rent it. It's streaming the Notorious RBG. Today's show is dedicated to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Forever lives. Unpleasant dreams. Good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Tonight, I promise you, we're going to talk about the movie Nanuchka, which was on Friday on TCM because it just happened to be Greta Garbo's birthday. She would have been 114, I believe. I could be wrong. I could be right. Why are we going to talk about Ninochka Because It had the tagline Garbo laughs Greta Garbo The Swedish beauty The actress The elusive actress Who famously said In the movie Grand Hotel I want to be alone And the guy kept offering her things And she's like I just want to be alone And she was very much alone In reality she left the motion picture business early in her career. Now, I asked the question about the movie Nunochka, directed by Ernest Lubitsch, um, also starring Melvin Douglas. Then there was The Coharts. You see, Greta Garbo doesn't show up until maybe 20 minutes, I think 20 minutes, into the movie *The Movie Nunochka. Now, Nanochka was released in 1939, the big year of motion pictures. I know you're laughing. Motion pictures. Well, that's what they used to call them, and that's what they still call them. You think of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, okay? So here we are. Nanochka. Nanochka was a, a big moment for Greta Garbo. Greta Garbo and many other actresses had been labeled box office poison. And, you know, Greta Garbo had a very interesting career. I love what um, Gore Vidal said of her. Gre- Gore Vidal was like, women liked her. Men didn't like her. I guess that was the lesbianism of her nature. You know, because there was always, you know, there, there was something ambiguous about Greta Garbo. So, Lu- uh, Ernest Lubitsch directed Nonochka. Nonochka was released... In November of 1939, that big year, you know, Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Dark Victory, all nominated for Academy Awards, including Nanochka. So, there are three Soviet agents within this story that are players within the context alongside Greta Garbo. There's Er, Er, Arunov, Bolyanov, and Kapolsky. They arrive in Paris to sell jewelry confiscated from the aristocracy during the Russian Revolution of 1917. Yes. So, Nanuchka shows up. She's not happy. The first thing she says to Arunov, Bolyanov, and Kapolsky is, ''Do not make an issue of my womanhood.'' And then, as they pass to go to the hotel where she learns that they've really racked up a bill. And I think she stumbles upon the bill, and she's like, oh, comrades, you must have been smoking a lot. Now she's playing this Russian woman, very rigid. So then she comes in contact. Well, first she passes the shop and sees that hat. What a strange thing. What an idiotic thing, that hat. She later wears that hat. So it's kind of like she's trying to hide who she really is underneath this veil of toughness. And then when she meets Melvin Douglas, it's all over. So she meets Melvin Douglas. He has no idea who she is because they're later going to do business together. And, you know, she's trying to look for the Eiffel Tower of all things. And then he's, you know, helping her with the map. And she's like, must you flirt? I don't have to, but I find it easier. Suppress it. Would you find that your uh, behavior is uh, normal morale of the people? And it goes from there. And so he gets to know Nunuchka. He takes her back to his apartment. Yes. And that is where the clock, you know, strikes 12. And she's like... It's 12 o'clock. What's so great about the clock? On the one pa- half of Paris is making love to the other half. Now, Melvin Douglas is playing this um, gentleman. Okay. We got we to gotta set this up here. If the iPad will um, cooperate, as it usually doesn't. Okay, so Melvin Douglas is pay, playing Count Leon Agnott, And so, he is... Oh, Bela Lugosi is in this. I forgot. <laughs> so, he is working on the transa- transaction of the jewels, okay? And Nonochka Yukoshova, that's her full name, happens to be the one in charge of turning those jewels back over to the family member who lives in Paris now. And in that process she falls in love with melvin douglas and so this rigid russian exterior come i mean you know the kremlin came down right there and um it was it was cute it was cute the way they you know and then also that moment where he follows her i mean he is smitting with uh, Nonochka, and I love saying that name. that's probably one of her best films, Nonochka. And he stumbles upon this restaurant for working men, and he lies and says he goes there all the time. So then he's telling her this story, and he and she doesn't laugh and he's like, everyone else finds it funny, but you don't. And he falls on his bottom, and everyone starts laughing, and as he looks up, Melvin Douglas looks up, Greta Garbo. Nonochka is laughing too So that was the tagline Garbo laughs Because you know originally When she first did her first talking film It was Garbo talks You know it was, it was a, Back then it was a big thing Oh Garbo laughs what she does And box office poison No more So Greta Garbo was nominated For best actress She didn't win Now, uh, Nonuchika on a whole received four Academy Award nominations. Best Picture, Best Actress, and Best Original Story. Now, this was the year of Gone with the Wind. So, of course, Gone with the Wind swept the awards. Here we are in 2020. You know, Olivia de Havilland has just died. The last cast member of Gone with the Wind, I think. And, you know, the controversy of Gone with the Wind... But I've always felt before all of this happened That Greta Garbo should have won the Academy Award for Best Actress for Nanochka. Because it was a transformative role She goes from this very, you know, rigid Russian agent To this love, happy woman for Melvin Douglas And, you know, yes, you know, Gone with the Wind was the longer movie yeah, Vivian Lee, and she runs the whole show. But at the end of the day, you look at this comedy with Greta Garbo, and comedies really don't fare well at the Academy Awards. Now, Greta Garbo left um, after uh, Two Faced Woman. Okay, so here's what happens. Pleased with the success of Nonochka, MGM quickly decided to team Garbo and Douglas in another romantic comedy, Two Faced Woman, in 1941 was a result of Garbo received the worst reviews of her entire career. It turned out to be her final film. Greta Garbo never did another film again. Now, she did a a test for a motion picture in the 40s where she looked great, but it, it didn't amount to anything. Now, Melvin Douglas later went on to win Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor in HUD as Paul Newman's father and in the movie Being There. His character is married to Shirley MacLaine. So, Greta Garbo. Greta Garbo went on to get an honorary Oscar, which she, of course, didn't turn up to pick up. They sent it to her. Greta Garbo died April fifteenth, nineteen ninety, at the age of eighty-four. So, thirty years ago, you know she never she never acted again. She truly lived. You know, the life that she wanted to, which was to be alone. She had her friends, but at the same time, even Jane Fonda was a friend of hers. They all said that she liked to be alone. That was, that she was a loner of sorts. You know, she was a good, she was a good um, entertainer. Now, um, Nanochka really stood the test of time, it stood the test of time came out, I mean this movie is 81 years old. Well, it will be in November. Um, Now, I always like to talk about personally what it means to me. When I first watched this film, strangely enough, it was 20 years ago and i had rented it out of curiosity. i had seen the AFI's 100 Years 100 Stars and that got me rolling into the classic cinema that I love today. And Nanuchka, I I loved Urinov, Bulinov, and Kapolsky because it was kind of like, okay, she's, you know, falling in love and they're they're going through their tricks. I mean, they are hilarious. And I love that. But I loved how Greta Garbo, you know, her face, she had that face. You could just look at her and you knew what she was thinking about. She was thinking about Melvin Douglas the entire time. Melvin Douglas should have got an Academy Award for this. He is great. He is hilarious. Because, you know, the way he kind of just woos her, it doesn't take a lot for him to woo her. You know, I think him falling on her himself really got her, you know, smitten with him. So this movie, you know, I've seen it many, many times. Um, Whenever it's on, I try to watch it. On Friday, I realized that, you know, that was Greta Garbo's birthday. And I thought, you know, I was going to talk about Ninochka. And then I ended up talking about The Goonies on the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. But you know what? It's always good to talk about things that we know. Ninochka is such a great comedy. Um, Melvin Douglas, Greta Garbo, even Greta Garbo's family has said that her favorite film of hers was Ninochka. You think of, I mean, she'd made Anna Christie. She'd made Camille. Um... You know, she'd made so many films And got the tagline Box office poison Oh, and don't forget Queen Christina Where she dressed up in men's clothes Now, that really kind of got people thinking That she was ambiguous She had also played Madhari But in terms of her sexuality You know, I think it's irrelevant to this conversation When you look at Nunuchka. And the way she falls in love with Melvin Douglas, it's almost like she really did fall in love with Melvin Douglas, and that's what I love about this movie. It's it's so it's not screwball comedy funny, but it is you know it's a romantic comedy. This is of course before Julia Roberts was even a thought, before any of the rom coms as we call them. This was a true quintessential romantic comedy. Okay. So, I hope you've enjoyed that. and Tonight, it's almost midnight. So, one, of, one half of California is fighting fires, and I, my hat goes off to them, and the other half is making love. So, as always, unpleasant dreams. Welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. So tonight, I promise you, we're going to talk about a classic, The Ghosts with the Most. If you don't know who I'm talking about just by saying that word, The Ghosts with the Most, because I figure, you know, let's do some movies that lead up to Halloween. And so we're going to talk about a movie that is important. Why? Because it's funny. Because it took a subject matter such as death, and it turned it on its head. Remember many times I've talked about it on this podcast. Draw a door. Draw a door. What movie am I talking about? I'm talking about Beetlejuice. I'm talking about the ghost with the most. Okay? So Beetlejuice came out in 1988. I can remember it particularly. Because I saw it when I was little. And... You know, as Beetlejuice says about The Exorcist, but it's, I've seen it about 167 times and it keeps getting funny every time I see it. I've seen Beetlejuice so many times that I know the dialogue backwards and forwards and outwards and inwards. And I, and I remember the cartoon because the cartoon came out Probably about a year after the movie. I loved the cartoon. Although in the cartoon, they didn't mention the Maitlands. They didn't mention, you know, it was just Lydia living with her parents and Beetlejuice was a different kind of character. And they would go to the neither world a lot. So the cartoon was a little more innocent, and but it was still fun, you know? So Tim, um, you know, I almost said Tim Robbins. <laughs> Tim Burton, the icon. I mean, you think of, okay, Edward Scissorhands, The Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, Sweeney Todd, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, okay? You know, um, Planet of the Apes, yeah. Tim Tim Burton. And Batman, of course. But Beetlejuice, you know, Beetlejuice, that was his first time with Michael Keaton, who would go on to do Batman twice. Beetlejuice has an extraordinary cast. You know, this weekend, um, Catherine O'Hara just won an Emmy for um, Schitt's Creek. But we all remember Catherine O'Hara as, um, you know... uh, Mrs. Dietz in Beetlejuice. Um, yeah. And, of course, Lydia Dietz, played by Winona Ryder. When she was, you know, she was still a teenager. You got to think, she, she was about to do Heathers, which we'll probably talk about at some point on the podcast. But Beetlejuice, I mean, the cast alone. Okay, you got... Um, Katherine O'Hara, Alec, a very young and skinny Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, um, Winona Ryder, Sylvia Sidney, who plays Juno, the caseworker, remember that, um, Dick Cavett makes an appearance, um... And, of course, Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. And Michael Keaton went to wardrobe immediately when he asked, well, what time period was this character from? And they said, all time periods. So he immediately thought of someone like Keith Richards. He thought, okay, the hair needs to look like, he, he said, I need some hair that looks like I stuck my finger in a lightning, a light socket. So he was already thinking ahead. And then he said, mold, you know, I want his skin to look moldy, like something's growing on it. And, of course, the Beatles, you know, save that guy for later. There, There is so much to be said about Beetlejuice. And remember, you say, you say his name three times, you, you take him out, and then if you want to put him back in, you got to say Beetlejuice, 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 Beetlejuice. And, of course the handbook for the recently deceased or as Adam says, handbook for the recently deceased deceased oh my god, look at that publisher handbook for the recently deceased to press you know Adam, I don't think we survived that crash (laughs) and the sandworm remember that? the neither world Beetlejuice, I have a particular um, connection to it. My grand, my late grandmother, I'll never forget this. She says to my mother, I can't believe you let them watch that. And then, I think I've said this before on the show. They let themselves in to watch Beetlejuice. They watch Beetlejuice all of the time i used to have a beetlejuice action figure the action figures i don't think lasted too long because some of them were pretty graphic you know that and the mighty max those were my two favorite toys the beetlejuice beetlejuice is such a moment it's such a moment in movies you know In terms of the animation that Tim Burton created, in terms of the look, the feel of the movie, a lot of Tim Burton movies began to have that look and that feel of eccentricity like Edward Scissorhands, okay? You know, um, uh, there are moments in Beetlejuice that we will remember forever. The Deo scene... With the shrimp, remember that? Possession, where they possess all of them and they're doing Dale, D.C. Um The sandworm. Draw a door. Draw a door, my brother and I tried to draw a door. It didn't lead to anywhere. You know, um, I was like Juno. <laughs> you know, uh, where they're like, how long do you think we were there? Three months. I'd almost lose, lost hope on you But three months. I do have other clients. So, you're Juno, our caseworker? Yes, I um, determine if help is needed or available. Are you available? No. What's wrong? We're very upset, you know, depressed. What do you expect? You're dead. I don't know. Things seem pretty quiet here. You can thank God you didn't die in Italy. The Dietz's. You know, and then the whole... That they spent 125 years on Earth, and so they got to spend another 125 years. So they have to make peace with the people who are living in the house. They've basically ransacked this house. This house looks all futuristic now. It looks crazy. You know, um, Delia Dietz's art is just crazy. Uh, and, of course, the teenager, Winona writer, Lydia Dietz. Where, you know, the the Maitlands put on the sheets to try to scare them. And so she's taking photographs, and then she thinks it's her parents. And then all of a sudden, she's like, no feet. Are you, good? Are you the guys hiding up in the attic? We're practicing. You're not gross nine of the living dead it's a movie how is it that you see us but your parents don't see us well I look through that handbook for the recently deceased live and live people ignore the strange and unusual I myself am strange and unusual you look like a regular girl to me you looked through our book yeah you followed it yeah what are you two doing in Delia's bedroom where we were trying to scare your mother, stepmother, and you can't step and you can't scare her. She's sleeping with Prince Valium tonight. Yeah, I can't sound like I don't think anyone can sound like Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin has one of those voices. I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, Alec Baldwin, that's why he's done books. He's done books on tapes. He's probably, he could narrate Jane Fonda's exercise tapes, and then it would turn into a whole other thing. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. There's so many things within Beetlejuice that you remember. It's one of those movies. The Funko Pops are extraordinarily expensive, so I don't think so. Homie, don't play that. (sighs) Beetlejuice went on to win some Academy Awards for um, special effects. You know, the movie itself is a classic. Um, The music, the situations. Remember that they had that model of the town the house that they lived in. The house is in the cartoon. You know, the cartoon, I love the cartoon. I love that on Saturday mornings, I could watch it. I remember because it started out in September of 1989. I remember because that was the first week of back to school, you know. And Beetlejuice had such an effect on me, the cartoon and the movie. And I remember... When we were paying our respects to my grandmother, and I said to my cousin, "I said, you know, I'm convinced that she realizes now there isn't a handbook for the recently deceased, and is probably laughing because you know Beetlejuice. And that was the thing about Beetlejuice: Beetlejuice took a subject matter like death and made it funny. It made it. It made it realize, okay, there." There could be something beyond all of this. How we could determine that, I don't know. And then, of course, the theme music. Okay, the theme, the way that movie opens. Attention, Kmart shoppers. Now that part is crazy because there's a. I have a theory is is that those who see Beetlejuice and witness his craziness and his magic. He's got to have them subdued. The outsiders have to die. And there's a moment where there's two outsiders and they have to die. I think they died. I don't remember. That's where he's like, attention, Kmart shoppers. Well, I feel really good. Ooh, look at the Maitland's head. I think they've had enough exercising for tonight. All right, kids. Yeah. And then he says, you know, um... What he tries to do is he tries to pull Lydia into the thing. you know Lydia is this teenager, she's confused she's she's feeling very alone, and she loves the the Maitlands. she loves Barbara and Adam, you know played by Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. She absolutely loves them they feel like her parents versus her real parents so there's that connection and you know she says to them at one point I want to be dead too and they're like no you can still visit us from time to time you know so there's that connection you know and the movie has a very interesting ending you know how the cartoon continued afterwards is a little baffling to me because then you look at the movie but the cartoon was so fun you know, I have a box set of the cartoon series. It, it lasted for a couple of seasons, you know. I, I don't think people could handle it. I handled it pretty well. But, you know, the movie itself, there's always been talk with Beetlejuice about a sequel. Um, that's about 32 years too late. I mean, you know, they talked about Beetlejuice in Hawaii, and I guess it would be Lydia, all grown up. She's, she's got kids, you know. Um, I don't, you know, and that's the other thing with the Maitlands. Is it, it's not even 125 years yet. I mean, you know, are the Dietzes still living in the house with them? You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe. It, you know, it's hard to say. Like I said, it's Beetlejuice. With Beetlejuice, you got to be ready. You got to be ready, okay. So, what else can I say? I sound like I'm in the neither world right now because I the way I have the sound on this thing going. You know, the Doctor Zeus Film Podcast. And I thought, you know, it's important leading up to Halloween, talking about these movies. Here, Here's just an idea of where I want to go with this. So tonight we talked about Beetlejuice. Last night we talked about Hocus Pocus. Eventually we're going to talk about The Exorcist. <laughs> we're going to talk about, um, you know, The Shining, A Clockwork Orange, although I wouldn't consider that a scary movie. Uh, I did not like The Omen, but we may have to talk about it. I even saw the remake. Uh, no. What are some other ones? I mean, you know, there's so many. Ooh, Halloween. Eventually, I'm going to have to talk about Halloween and Psycho and the connection that they have to each other. And in 2018, hard to believe it's been that long, since we got what we would consider a true sequel to Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, the whole family where she's a grandmother now, you know. They're already working on another one. That Halloween was amazing. And when we saw it in the theater, I remember people going, now that's what I'm talking about. That When people talk to the screen, that's what I like is that reaction, that audience, you know, uh, participation. So with Beetlejuice, I didn't see it in the theater because I was only seven. Um, we were seeing Disney movies. We weren't seeing Beetlejuice. But Beetlejuice is such a classic. I love it. I I always watch it at some point. You know, I know that my niece and nephew recently watched it, and they told me there's the F word once, and it's like great. When I first saw it, I don't remember that because it was so. You know, I was so little. Uh, I was aware of that word, of course. Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Who went on to play Batman, Birdman? Okay, in fact, he got an Oscar nomination for Birdman, but not Beetlejuice. You know, there's something that he brings to Beetlejuice that nobody else ever could. You know, I'm surprised he didn't voice the cartoon because, you know, there's something distinct about Michael Keaton playing Beetlejuice as is katherine o'hara playing delia Deeds. you know she went on to do um home alone you have winona Ryder, who i mean went on to do dracula heather's girl interrupted i mean yeah alec baldwin you know 30 rock um, Gina Davis, who went on to win an Academy Award for the Accidental Tourist and then did Thelma and Louise in 1991, okay? So all of the players in Beetlejuice went on to do really good things. And Tim Burton. Tim Burton did what mm. my niece considers one of her favorite movies, and that's Nightmare Before Christmas, so, you know. It's, it's amazing that it continues, you know. So with Beetlejuice, just go and watch it. It's one of those classic movies that there's something in there for everyone. I mean, I think fondly of my grandmother, her reactions to Beetlejuice. I think of the reactions to my siblings the first time we all watched Beetlejuice, you know. And as always... Unpleasant dreams, but first, Beetlejuice, 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 Beetlejuice. Oh no! Good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Tonight, I promise you, we're going to talk about a movie that deals with greed, ambition, and hypocrisy. Why? Because it's important, especially during these times, and also those who have often misunderstood the film that I'm going to talk about right now. It started principal photography in June of 2006 under the direction of Paul Thomas Anderson. Starring in this role, I'm, I'm leading up to it, Academy Award winner, Daniel Day-Lewis. So now you know what I'm talking about. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. There will be blood. Based on the novel Oil by Upton Sinclair, there will be blood was released in December of 2007. It went on to be nominated for Best Actor, Best Director, Best Picture, Best Cinematography, in the end, it won for Best Cinematography and Best Actor. This was the second win for Daniel Day-Lewis. He would go on to win a third Academy Award for his role as Abraham Lincoln and Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Now, Dan- Daniel Day-Lewis always the um, actor, the actor's actor, the method actor. Because if you know the story, when he was doing My Left Foot, Which he won his first Academy Award He would not break character And insisted in staying in his wheelchair And being fed Because he didn't want to break The character of Christy Brown He wanted to stay in character And hey, you know There's always a method behind the madness Method acting So, Daniel Day-Lewis Comes out of retirement He said he wasn't going to make any more films Martin Scorsese brought him out And then he said he wasn't going to make any more films again. Paul Thomas Anderson said, you know, I'm doing this movie called There Will Be Blood. Daniel Day-Lewis, he decides to take it on. In preparing for the role, Daniel Day-Lewis decided to take the voice of John Huston and put it into his film. So basically, the character Daniel Plainview, if you notice, he's talking similar to someone we've all known in interviews, and that is the late director John Huston. It was also a nod to the treasure of the Sierra Madre. What can I tell you about There Will Be Blood? Here's a funny story to it, okay? There Will Be Blood deals with greed, oil, okay? Ambition Televangelist Because there is also these twins Both played by Paul Dano And one turns out to be A televangelist Who has his little church And him and Daniel Plainview Duke it out In the process of this As he is mining for his fortune And stumbles upon oil One of his workers is killed Thus leaving him To inherit a baby Which he names H.W. Plainview. And helps him sell land. Helps him broker people. Yes, because he knows that if he has this young person next to him. Oh, he's a family man. And he always says that. I'm an oil man. I'm a family man. And we can make a deal. I have a competition in me. You know, moments like this. So I had been wanting to see it. Since it first came out And my cousin and I went and saw There Will Be Blood We both thought it was crazy We loved it, okay So then A couple weeks later My brother and his friend want to go see There Will Be Blood Because I guess they thought it was about boxing Because you know, there is blood in the title And I didn't stop them I didn't deter them I thought, okay, fine Another trip to see There Will Be Blood In the theater Because I had loved boxing the movie we see it they both fell asleep and then when they woke up why did you take I said hey you know what that was your decision I don't care how many damn awards it's nominated for it sucked all right that's fine that's your opinion and and a lot of people would say to me I don't want to see it I feel I don't need to get a history lesson but it wasn't about that it was about this man, Daniel Plainview, who had been so ambitious that he let his guard down. He had people impersonating others to get close to him, his own son. Something happens to his son and he recognizes, you know, that it's all not all it seems, and all he can gravitate toward is his power and his wealth, his love for ambition this film you know I've always admired Daniel Day-Lewis I think he's probably one of our great actors and I don't think he is totally retired I think he says that because you know what he does takes a lot out of him and what he did and there will be blood and if you've never seen it that's why I'm not going to spoil it for you but there is a pivotal moment in this film that even SNL parodied and that is the milkshake You see, I reach across and drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Did you think your song and dance is superstition? I am the third revelation. I told you I would eat you. That is a moment from There Will Be Blood. So even doing that, it's like I need a glass of water. You know, just imagine Daniel Day-Lewis doing that every day. Okay. There Will Be Blood was crazy. I've seen No Country for Old Men. That is fascinating, but I loved There Will Be Blood even more because there was an ambition. In fact, strangely enough, There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men were both filming in Texas at the same time in 2006. So, At the 80th Academy Awards, the film was nominated for eight Oscars, tying with another Paramount Vintage Miramax co-production, No Country for Old Men. The nominations included Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay for Anderson. The film won two Oscars, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Daniel Day-Lewis, and the Cinematography for Robert Elswight. The cinematography in There Will Be Blood is just beautiful. You know, the whole story itself starts in 1898, and then it goes all the way, all the way to 1927, 1927, and what happens there is cold, is calculating, is comedic. It is true, pure madness. There will be what. There will be blood. Is not a history lesson. There will be blood. Is a take on greed. This makes um, Wall Street the movie look like an after-school special. If you don't know what those are, look them up. It looks like some. You know, this makes those, uh, Wall Street and a lot of the movies about greed look like Nickelodeon shows for kids because there will be blood. There is. There's stuff that comes out of Daniel Day-Lewis's mind that you just cannot believe, okay? It is true. It is purely crazy. And the way Daniel Day-Lewis um the the way he just boils into it and he truly becomes Daniel Plainview, using that John Houston voice. Um, now, I was going to have someone talk with me about the film, but I thought, you know, I don't want to disturb them. I know that my cousin enjoyed the film. We talked about it on many occasions, you know. And those who didn't like the film, there will be blood. I would say now that some of you are parents, I think you might understand it a little more. Now, I'm not a parent. I'm an uncle. But at the same time, you could say I'm a parent. Um, I understood it immediately. You know, there's a tender moment in the train between the little baby and Daniel Plainview. It's like out of a silent movie. I love I loved There Will Be Blood. Even though it's hard to watch, and I don't watch it often, that I've watched it enough, I wrote a paper for it for my college newsletter. That's how much I loved and believed in There Will Be Blood. This was the beginning of the iPhone revolution, too. You know, I wrote the draft for the paper on my first iPhone, you know, before I switched over to Verizon. There Will Be Blood truly is a classic film now. It's been goodness 13 years since there will be blood was released and um, it's truly amazing it's it's a movie that it gets under your skin it makes you think about greed it makes you think about power how hungry people were at the beginning of the 20th century and where you know daniel plainview will step on his own child which he does in order to get ahead in life. It doesn't matter. something happens, he will buy it. He will buy, he will buy stock to make it better. That's his whole thing, is the security of being Daniel Plainview. You know, and the book Oil is just his cutthroat. And so what Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson did it's truly remarkable. They work together to get, again in Phantom Thread, which Daniel Day-Lewis claims was his last movie. I'll believe it when I see it. So, there, we B- there Will Be Blood. It's truly a landmark movie. It is Daniel Day-Lewis at his absolute best. You know, the true method actor. Paul Thomas Anderson Paul Thomas Anderson You know everything From Boogie Nights To Magnolia To Punch Drunk Love To The Master To Phantom Thread And now There Will Be Blood There Will Be Blood To me Is Paul Thomas Anderson's Masterpiece You think of everything That he did In the other films All the characterizations And here he arrives At the beginning Of the 20th century with Daniel Plainview. Played by Daniel Day-Lewis. There Will Be Blood is crazy. It's filled with moments that you can't believe. Um, My favorite is where he's in, you know, he's under the guidance of the televangelist Eli. Remember Eli? (laughs) Drink that milkshake. And he says, You've backslided, Daniel. You've abandoned your child. And the scowl that Daniel Day-Lewis gives Eli, played by Paul Dano. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. And the way he just hums it and sings it, it's, yeah, you know, he's, and then he says, you know, give me the blood, Lord, give me the blood. And they pour the water over him. And he, you know, like a a woolly sheep dog just, you know, shakes it off. And that's the brilliance of Daniel Day-Lewis in this movie. You know, I, I don't want to keep doing the impressions because I know that I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis. We'll leave that to the um, expert that he is, the true professional. That is Daniel Day-Lewis. And so to Paul Thomas Anderson, I want to thank you for giving us There Will Be Blood 13 years later, it still affects me. I had wanted to talk about this film for so long. You know, I love this film. I love talking to people who hate it, who love it, who don't get it. And then those who are just like myself, marveled by it, the film nerds in us. Quentin Tarantino loved There Will Be Blood. That's always the thing is when other filmmakers are like, I love There Will Be Blood. You know, And it it wasn't just for the acting, it was for the sheer cinematography, the music, you know, um, the music with There Will Be Blood, which was ineligible to be even nominated, unfortunately, the score by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. So everything about There Will Be Blood, the look, the feel, the sound, the music, the score, the acting, the writing, this was truly a, a... you know, this movie slaps you around. You ride the roller coaster of Daniel Plainview's world. This makes Homer Simpson's world look like beef jerky, okay? It is truly, purely crazy. They should have been, it should have been called There Will Be Blood, and it's crazy because it was, and you know, and all the blood, sweat, and tears that it takes for each character who is interacting with Daniel Plainview, and as he steps on them in the process of rising to the occasion that he wants to arrive at, the end will leave you blistered, bloody, laughing, in shock. Because he truly does have the last word in the end, and this is where we're going to end the podcast of the Doctor Zeus Film Podcast for today. Usually, I would say unpleasant dreams, which I just said, but as he says, remember he has the last word, and there will be blood. I'm finished. Good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Tonight, I figured it's close to Halloween. We have a month to go, but the month of September is almost over. And so I thought, I promise you tonight we're going to talk about a classic, a cult classic that did not do too well when it was first released in July of 1993. It had a pretty amazing cast. And that's why I was stunned that it didn't do too well. And I remember seeing it in the theaters. Why are we talking about this film? Because it had a second life. It had a second life airing on television. From the Disney Channel to Freeform to airings on television. I'm talking about. Hocus Pocus. Yeah, isn't that hard to believe that Hocus Pocus, this Halloween classic that we all revere, did not do too well at the box office. Was seen as a failure by Disney. And then it was rediscovered. I loved it immediately. You know, I don't know, that's just me. I love Halloween. It had such a great cast. I mean, you got Bette Midler, Kathy Najimy, Sarah Jessica Parker. You know? And then you have Thora Birch, who was a little kid, you know, went on to do American Beauty, you know. Hocus Pocus is such a classic movie. And I figured, you know, since it's near Halloween, we should talk about it. You know, Hocus Pocus was released 27 years ago. It's hard to believe. And you know, when it, I always have this theory is that when you have someone like Bette Midler, Bette Midler has a big gay following. She's bathhouse Betty, and you know, she really camped. She camped it up in this movie. And I remember telling someone that this when we were watching the movie years later, and they said, "What's camp?" I said, "It's you know, it's it's camp. Look it up. There's different variations of camp." And, you know, I immediately recognized that watching Hocus Pocus years later. You know, as a kid, you don't know that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, okay. So Hocus Pocus was directed by Kenny Ortega. Um, Bette Midler as Winifred Sanderson, the buck teeth. Kathy Jimmy as... Uh, was it Mary or Sarah? I always got her confused. Ah, Mary Sanderson. Sarah Jessica Parker. This is way before Sex and the City. As Sarah Sanderson, the Sanderson sisters. Omar uh, Katz as Max Denison. Thor Birch as Danny Dennison. Vanessa Shaw as Allison. The object of Max's affections. And... Um, Sean Murray as Thackeray Binks, also the black cat, you know. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, my. Anyway. So when I first saw this movie, I immediately fell in love with it. And then I remember reading that it didn't do too well, and I thought, Why? But, you know, I mean, as a kid, you don't understand those things. It's like, oh, okay, I like this movie, but the critics and the rest of the world doesn't like it. That really sucks. And then people started to catch on. And it became a ritual, you know, along the lines of the Rocky Horror Picture Show or Halloween or Nightmare Before Christmas is Hocus Pocus, you know? In fact, those are the movies that you have to watch leading up to Halloween. And I, I just loved it. I loved it. Uh, like I said, Bette Midler camped it up. She vamped it up. You know, the songs, I put a spell on you, you know? The black cat, the black flame candle, remember? And a virgin has to light. That That's a pretty embarrassing thing right there too reveal in front of a girl that you're pining for, that you're a virgin and only you could light the black flame candle. Yeah. And it brings the Sanderson sisters back from the dead. They'd been dead since 1693 and happened to come back in 1993. Why didn't they come back in 1997 or 2000? I don't know. Wouldn't that, you know, flying cars, the witches would have just been you know, speaking of flying, there's a moment where their brooms are stolen. And so one of them has a vacuum cleaner. Um, I forget what the other one had. It is a funny movie. There are so many classic moments in Hocus Pocus. My favorite is when they're driving and they're trying to outwit the witches. And you just can't do that, especially the Sanderson sisters. It's almost like the. You know um what is it the three Stooches basically in which form Nick Nick and um they're driving and they realize though they're being followed by the you know the Sanderson sisters and without missing a beat when Winifred Sanderson pull over let me see your driver's permit <laughs> resisting arrest yeah so many, you know the songs too I mean you know where Max is like they're here the Sanderson sisters. Thank you Max for that marvelous introduction. I put a spell on you and now you're mine and and they're basically truly putting a spell on everyone you know and the witch is back and there's hell to pay yeah. Moments like that. And then you've got Gary Marshall and Penny Marshall making um, uh, iconic, um, you know, uh, appearance in the movie as a married couple. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're brother and sister. You know, and and I love Penny Marshall. She's like, hey, ain't you broads a little old to be trick-or-treating? We'll be younger in the morning. Yeah, sure. Me too. Excuse me. And they think that... Gary Marshall is the devil himself. The Master. The master gave me a Clark bar. Why would the master give us candy? Because he is not our master. And these are not goblins. And then they reveal that, you know, it's children with the masks on. Weirdos. And they're like, sisters, Halloween is a night of frolic where people Wear costumes, get candy, and run amok, amak, amak, Yeah. And um, if you've never seen Hocus Pocus, shame on you. It is truly. It's it's along the lines. You're gonna think I'm crazy for saying this, but it is the Doctor Zeus Film Podcast. It is along the lines of watching It's a Wonderful Life leading up to Christmas time watching hocus pocus leading up to halloween but then you know there's another movie we could talk about next time the nightmare before christmas do you watch that leading up to christmas and halloween because you know it's it's got two iconic you know f- festivious days within it so uh, what hocus pocus means to me is so much. You know, as I said, I loved it early on. You know, I was kind of like baffled that people didn't like it. Or didn't respond to it. Is It's like almost, you know, how people rediscovered The Wizard of Oz through television. That's the same that could be said about Hocus Pocus. It's not just a kids movie. And a lot of the humor in it is not for kids. But it is a Disney movie. So... What else can you say? It's Hocus Pocus. Um, There's so many great moments. I mean, that song, Sarah Jessica Parker, I didn't even know she could sing. Thank God she didn't sing the Sex and the City thing. You know, but um, where, you know, she's singing and basically trying to lure the children to their house. Um, Bette Midler puts every, here's the thing. It's going to get gay up in here Because it's Bette Midler When you put Bette Midler in a movie Or a TV movie or a television show She's going to pull out All the stops Her Grammy, Academy Award nominee Golden Globe Tony Award winning Stuff Her energy She's a pro, she's a professional She's been doing this a long time And to have her In hocus pocus she should have at least gotten something for it because she gave it her all she's got the buck teeth she's got the hair she's got the singing you know that's that's the thing with Bette Midler is that's a shame that she's never won an academy award because you think of how she gives it her all this is this is a triple threat and she's hilarious you know she's a comedian you know and you and you can't really say that a lot about a lot of people who have been nominated for Academy Awards. Can you, Bill Murray, who should have won? It was his birthday this week. So, you know, we'll talk about one of his films. But see how I go off topic. But right now we're still talking about Hocus Pocus. Kathy Najimy, who is hilarious. I mean, you think she did this right after Sister Act. Sister Act. Oh, my God. You know, oh, to go from sister act, which originally Bette Midler was going to be in, but there were scheduling conflicts, and Whoopi Goldberg ended up doing it. So here she was, she would have done two movies with Bette. Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, I didn't know she was on Broadway. I didn't know she could sing. All I knew is she was Sex in the City, you know, but this is years before Sex in the City. I didn't know who she was, you know, um, and then the other cast, you know, really, a really good supporting cast, you know, you got the child actors, Thora Birch. Let me just tell you about Thora Birch from Hocus Pocus to now and then to Patriot Games to American beauty. Thora Birch really grew up before our eyes. But for me, it's all about now and then and Hocus Pocus because, you know, she's, you know, she's a kid. She's a kid growing up on screen. And here she is, maybe 10 or 9 in Hocus Pocus, you know. um, It's such an amazing movie. It's an amazing movie. I love that I can share it with the kids of my family. And I am a kid myself, you know, because I still remember the joy in the halloween spirit of watching hocus pocus 27 years ago you know it's it's a classic i love that it's become a cult classic i love that people have rediscovered it because it truly is bet midler at her best you know um, what an icon and it's and it's c- funny now, you know, I'm sure those kids who grew up watching Hocus Pocus then discovered that she's this big gay icon, you know, that you know, and and I hope that kind of inspires them to be like, oh she likes people for who they are, for their differences you know, because you think of, of the gay following that she has you know I mean, she truly she she really wears her heart on her sleeve, you know, and, um, Hocus Pocus is just, it's an amazing movie, and the story, I mean, it's kind of shocking at first how they, you know, get their youth back, and then, you know, that's the thing is, okay, we gotta stop them you know, they've got one night to you know, become young again and then they can live forever. But you know, they 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 have a vendetta against a certain child who called the ugly. You know, and um you know Winifred Sanderson's you know, she's all about that. And then of course, you know, Billy the Billy uh Winifred Sanderson's ex-boyfriend who was sporting with Sarah Sanderson, they sold his mouth shut with a dull needle so he couldn't tell his stories in death and then the fact that they can't step foot on the, the the in the graveyard because it's hollow ground and you'll find out why okay it's hocus pocus there are hocus pocus funko pop i know about funko pop trust me i've got my fill there's hocus pocus backpacks you go to hot topic remember hot topic when well, we could go to the mall there is hocus pocus pencils candy Masks. It has truly become a merchandise, and that says a lot for a movie that didn't do too well at the box office. You know, I mean, it made about it. The budget was twenty eight million, and it made about thirty nine point five. You know, um, it's one of those movies, and um, you know. I, I love it i'm i'm so I'm so grateful that we have this movie and um yeah hocus pocus is just truly truly amazing and um i wanna i wanna thank the cast for giving us giving the children giving the kids at heart ourselves this amazing you know movie. Um, I love that part where they're in the oven. I want my book. de Play Trami." You know, because they've got they're in the French. they got that French tape playing that lures them into the the oven. It's hot! It's hot! It's hot! It's hot! You know, but yeah, the end result is hilarious in that aspect. There's so many twists and turns in Hocus Pocus, you know. And for me though, it's it's all about the dialogue. It's all about the dialogue, it's about the quotes, you know, um, how they think that the pavement is a river of black death. <laughs> um, or, you know, hey, the black flame candle, just remember. If you don't want to be able to light it, then you cannot be a virgin, okay? Remember, and, and Thora Birch, his sister Danny's like, you know, Max is like, what happened? A virgin lit the candle. Oh, yeah. That brings the Sanderson sisters back from the dead. So... If you've never seen Hocus Pocus, that's why I didn't talk about the plot line. I didn't talk about what happens at the end. Pivotal moments. Watch it. Be a kid again. Show it to your kids. As always, unpleasant dreams. And remember, I put a spell on you, and now you're mine.